You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Jeppe Rindholm, the co-founder and CEO at Plio. We need to have the best, almost like virtual package for this workforce. Something you can plug into really, really fast that will work from day one and for as long as you want to stay in this society. Sometimes you have to be patient and this interview we actually booked half a year ago and we're going to sit down with the CEO of one of the unicorns of the Nordics when it comes to BSAS companies. Very happy about that. But before we go into that, uh, well, it's summertime, but uh, there's still a lot of happening for us at SAS Nordic. So Daniel, what's cooking? Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because when you mentioned patient, like we're not patient people. So this was, <laughs> this was hard for us. Yeah, <laughs> this this was difficult, but it's it's so great that we could finally do it. So yeah, and super happy just to book a meeting with someone six months ahead and they show up. Yeah, exactly. That's a new one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's a new one. Uh, speaking about the summer, uh, we're actually going to both enjoy a little bit of vacations, slightly different types of vacations. But it's still business as usual for us. And, and the big project we have undergoing this summer is Sassiest Digital 2022. So you've probably all seen and heard about our, our flagship digital event that is taking place September 27th. So it's a full day uh, multi-track event where we have invited, I'd say probably our, our strongest and most wide speakers roster to date. Lots of international speakers, subject matter experts, that's going to be with us for a full day and it's going to be lots of fun and we also decided to do slightly different format one of the great things is that we've decided to also make it free of charge for anybody that is operationally active for a b2b SaaS company so it's going to be lots of fun and there's going to be thousands of people there if we get it done the way we plan it to have it done yeah, and if you have any ideas of uh, speakers or uh, things that we could do to make it even better, just reach out to us on LinkedIn or send us an email at contact at sasnordic.com. But, uh, well, let's get into the interview. Today, we are very happy to have Jeppe Rindholm, the CEO and co-founder at Pleo, here as a guest in the SAS Nordic podcast. Warm welcome, Jeppe. Thank you so much, Thomas and Daniel. Um, it's great to be here. Oh, it's, it's really our honor to have you here. You, you probably don't know about this, but you have been... Uh, so at, at the end of every episode, we ask other founders, who would you like to see on the show? So there's a few people that have mentioned your name. So your friend uh, Mats, I believe from Dixa was some 30 episodes ago, was the first one that said, yep, it needs to be on here. Yeah. But Thomas, you remember, we, we also did a poll almost a year ago where we asked the SaaS community, what Danish company would you like to see on the show? Do you remember that, Thomas? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you guys were, I think, one of the top three companies there. So finally, we got you here. That's great. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I was supposed to mention Mass back to you at the end of the show, so now I need to think while speaking. <laughs> <laughs> then you're up to a challenge then. Uh, but super, but for the ones that are not familiar with you and Pleo, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Jeppe Rindum, uh, one of two co-founders of Pleo. Uh, I'm the CEO of the company that we started seven years ago. 
Uh, Empleo is, uh, is the product you need in your company, uh, no matter the size in the industry, uh, to really buy the stuff you need for work. So in Playo, you would enable all your employees with their company card or whether they need to pay a bill or so. And then the product takes care of all the tedious stuff that we all know, uh, collecting receipts, categorizing, bookkeeping, that kind of stuff. Uh, so really an all-in-one all in solution for everything you need to buy for work. We in Bleo, uh, we are operating in, in, in 10 European markets. We're serving 30,000 businesses by now and, um, and growing quite a bit. And we can talk more about that. My background um, in Italy, I, I'm, a, I'm a business graduate. I started, I guess, in an obvious track back then as a, as a management consultant. I've been in corporates as well. I never really settled. But in, uh, in 2010, I joined a small Danish fintech called TradeShift. Some of you may be familiar with them, uh, but I really experienced, you know, startup life and culture and fell in love with that. I also met my co-founder. And three years later, we, um, we left San Francisco and TradeShift and we spent a bit of time um, doing different stuff before starting Playo in 2015. So, so what made you, what was the tipping point that said, okay, we're starting Playo now, and this is what the company is going to do. Well, I think one was um, the experience in TradeShift just convinced me that um, startup and technology was, you know, the place where I could be surrounded with great talent, uh, super passionate, wanting to have impact, but also a place where there was pace and you could you could move stuff really fast. And I felt that you know great people I had met in management consulting, but I, I really lacked the long termness of things and the, the purpose of that job. Right. Uh, which I found on, on the contrary in, in corporate, but it was not as fast moving. So you could say the startup was the first time I felt the combination of the two. Uh, so that was the first learning. The second learning was that I was um, I was doing a lot of different things in, in trade shift, but I was also wearing the CFO hat. Uh, which meant that, you know, I had, uh, with a fairly light finance background, uh, I had to manage everything finance and, of course, everything that was being purchased and bookkeeping and so on. And it was just really tedious. Right. And, you know, there was just so much complexity. Uh, and, and, you know, it was also the time where, you know, the whole sassification of things were, were really taking off, uh, which fundamentally brought in a lot of more complexity to the finance team. And I can give you an example we were running um, Skype subscriptions in the entire company. And all of those subscriptions were powered with my company card. And uh, every time you spend $10, a person would have a top up on my card. So by the end of the month, you know, we would have X hundred Skype transactions on my card that I need to reconcile with receipts split between 200 employees that needed to log into the subscription to get those receipts and reconcile it with my statement, right? And you can multiply that complexity with the number of services and purchases that was done in, in the company, which was just a you know horrible process. Right. So uh, you know it felt like the CFO office was completely underserved from a tools and automation point of view, and and you know the combination of really falling in love with falling in love with being a part of a startup and then seeing a real problem um, made made it um, clear for me that eventually I wanted to start a business. I, I love that. So it's, it started really with, with you having experiencing a problem yourself and 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 building then from there on. And you know, listening to what you just said, I laughed a little bit here because 
probably you would never want to work with Thomas and myself. I should only speak about myself here, but at, at one of my previous companies, I was one of those that took all my expenses to the CFO end of December and says like, sorry, here's 20,000 of travel expenses, do something with it. And now we have to manage both the Netflix and the Spotify thing that came on the company card now <laughs> due to PayPal. But okay, that's another story. <laughs> but but Jeppe, you also mentioned being a founder in the Nordics. And I know that you have been involved in in trying to improve the conditions of being a founder here in the Nordic. So where do you see, what do we lack here in the Nordic compared to other regions? Yeah, first of all, I would say, um, I think it is easier than ever uh, to be a founder here in the Nordics. Uh, just as you know, the workforce has generally been distributed and it's possible to work from anywhere, it's, it's kind of also become easier to be a founder no matter where you're based. Um, capital, you can attract capital no matter where you are. You can attract people no matter where you are. Um, so, uh, you know, when I've engaged in this conversation, I would say, you know, I, I'm wearing different hats. You know, there is my co-founder and CEO of Plio Hats with international investors behind me. And then there is my hat, which is like, I'm a Dane and I want to do what's right for Denmark. And, and, and you need to divide those things a little bit um, because the reality is with the kind of company that we've become and the brand we have, um, it's not a problem for us to attract capital. It's not a problem for us to attract talent and operate. We can do that very, very efficiently. The problem is with the other hat is that I feel sometimes forced to build outside of Denmark to succeed. And that's really not a problem. It's really not a problem for Plio. We can do that anytime. Yeah. But generally speaking, why is that a, why do you feel that some people might be forced to build outside of Denmark? Well, um, I think there's a few things to that. I think the first one is related to talent. Um, so there is not a lot of talent available in Denmark. And for some, for some roles there, there is, but for everything digital engineering, product, um, digital marketing and so on, it's very limited. And then secondly, as you mature your company, you want to you want to mix your organization with people that have tried the journey before. And those are also a limit. Uh, there's a limit to that in Denmark. So so you're left with a few um, options, you know, either you 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 try to bring people to Denmark or you build outside of Denmark. And, you know, I actually, I like to bring people to Denmark because I know that it's good for the society. And eventually, I would say, Plea would never have happened if Denmark did not attract my co-founder, Nico, in the first place. He's Italian. So I know that, you know, building companies with local people is good for society because it creates the next company and the next company and it becomes a cluster of success. Right. So I, I prefer um, to bring people to Denmark. But there is a problem because Denmark is, and Copenhagen, it's an incredibly expensive place to live. And it's also an expensive place from a taxation point of view, because we have a very heavy welfare system. But for the kind of people we hire, there's, um, there's a gap between how heavily they are using our welfare system as opposed to how heavily they're contributing to the welfare system. Right. It's unproportionate. It's unproportionate. We bring in people that have already paid for their education elsewhere. Many of them, they don't have families yet and, and children in school and stuff like that. So they really don't use our welfare system. They're healthy. Um, but they have to pay up for that. Whilst 
only having a time consideration of maybe two to five years. So from for, for, for their perspective, from their perspective, it's a very unfair deal. Right. And it's just not competitive with the lifestyle and financially and, and livability-wise they can have in Lisbon or in Barcelona or elsewhere in the world. So what I have tried to, to put some attention on uh, is that as a society and in terms of the, the, the frameworks we put in place, we need to adapt to this modern world. And the concept of thinking that people are going to plug into our package for a lifetime that's long overdue. People are, you know, they, they are subscribing to the society for a period of time. Right. And you need to be attractive at any point in time. And we're just not in Denmark. And that's why I think the talent uh, topic is, is a sensitive one and it, it makes it difficult to scale outside of, uh, out of Denmark. Right. So it sounds like it's a, it's a political decision. Like, you know, so somehow the politician needs to, to lower the entry barriers for this expertise type of talent like what do you see are you getting the responses or we moving in the direction that is favorable yes and no I, I i do recognize that it is easier than ever to build companies out of denmark a lot easier than 10 years ago so we have moved in the right direction and i would say that the whole ecosystem around startups and, and growth companies is a lot better today than it used to be so there's a lot of good things to say but on the talent agenda, no, I, I actually don't think we've moved. Um, quite on the contrary, I would say the access to engineers and, and digital people is even more difficult today than it was 10 years ago. And that's why you see, um, and I think that's horrible data, but if you look at the biggest businesses in Denmark, um, and I would say those are the real contributors to our welfare system, you know, on average, the companies, you know, the Carlsberg, the Mask, um, you know, the Coroplast and so on, they have been around for an average of 125 years. Right. Um, and yet still, they they have 20 to 40% of their workforce in Denmark. If you look at the new generation winners, the Unity, the Sendesk, you know, the Trade Shift, um, they have between 5 and 20% of the workforce in Denmark after just 10, 15 years. Yeah. And of course, you know, I think you're not building companies today with 100% of your workforce in Denmark. It's, it's not, I'm not naive around that. But, but you do have the option to say, hey, I'm going to build our operations in Denmark. I'm going to build our product in Denmark. I'm going to build certain things. Uh, and I think if you ask these companies, they, they, they could have maintained maybe 30% of the workforce in Denmark had it been available. So somehow, for somehow, I think the welfare system is at risk if we don't figure out how to retain the companies. And then there's the other element of that, which is the next founders are coming from these companies. Exactly. And we've had about 10 companies break, you know, being born out of Plio already. And, you know, there are a few of them that have been born in Denmark, but a lot of them have been born outside of Denmark. And we could have we we could have harvested that as a Danish society had we been better at this. Yep, and it's it sounds like we we should uh, put together a pledge because without being an expert here, I think we have similar issues and challenges in the other Nordic countries as well. Of course, there might be flavors, but I, I think I've heard similar stories here. So, if if there's any politician listening to this, listen carefully. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think you know what. Um, uh, just to, to, I'm very passionate about this because I think, 
You know, what, what Dublin did um, a century ago or more, you know, in terms of being really advanced in how they put in place framework agreements for technology companies and really took over a lot of growth from that with sales eco-centers around Dublin, which is like, that's a thing of the past now because like people are not going to live in Dublin to, to sell when you can sell from home. Right. What's happening now is the workforce is moving where it's livable and where you can have a great life. And I think the Nordics, if anything, it's extremely livable. It's, it's a place where you can see yourself living. So what you need to fix is the other part of the package. And I think we need to come up, and I think yesterday Estonia that has done a little bit of that, like, you know, think of this as we need to have the best, almost like virtual package for this workforce. Something that you can plug into really, really fast that will work from day one and for as long as you want to stay in this society. Um, and you can come here, you can live here, you can leave the next day. It has to be super easy to get in. Um, taxation and everything needs to be acceptable. Um, I think, you know, there's a really a unique opportunity to reinvent what Dublin did when it was about physical workforce to now a more mobile work workforce. And I think that the society that is both livable and managed to be cutting edge on this, they're going to win. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you then a question. If you would be uh, have the possibility, and there's probably 500 people in similar shoes like you listening to this podcast here, what would it be your message to them? How do we make this change together? What do we need to do? We listen to this now, but do we need to call our local politician or what happens? So I think luckily what has happened in the past five, 10 years is that the population, the average population has actually started to care and identify themselves with entrepreneurship. Uh, and that's a great advantage for us that, you know, the lion's den is all over TV. It's a top show and everyone is excited about these companies growing. It's, it's almost the same as, you know, sports teams, you know, succeeding. And I think that's incredibly important because that is, that is essentially what's going to move the politicians. And I think, you know, if we all take responsibility and we publicly voice um, these problems and we start to get the attention of the population, um, I think we can also move politicians. But it's a tricky one because particularly in Denmark, you know, you know almost any party in Denmark, they, uh, they want to strengthen and make it more restrictive how easy it is for foreigners to get into Denmark. Um, you know, that's one and social dumping is, a, is another one. So it's a super hot potato to navigate. But super, I mean, it was uh, really insightful and, and I think uh, it encourages us also to, to try to do more content and, and uh, talk to others in, in this, uh, around this topic as well. And I hope we can have you on, on the stage on some of our SASIS events. I think this is something that, um, that touches a lot of people. Uh, but going back and talking about Pleo a little bit more, just to understand a little bit about the size of your operation and so, can, can you mention something about that? Um, yeah, so we are, we've just turned um, 800 people, uh, roughly 300 here in, in Denmark. That's more than 5%. Good job. Yeah, that is more than 5%. <laughs> but, um, but it's unfortunately changing when new, new uh, groups of people are coming in every month. Uh, we've actually had a few months where we've brought in almost 100 people every month. Wow. Uh, so we've been really growing fast in the first half of the year. 
we've also opened up a number of new markets. We, um, when the pandemic hit, we, we decided to consolidate uh, and focus on existing markets. We were in six countries at the time. And, um, and that has been good for business just to be focused. But coming out of the pandemic, we said, let's be ambitious um, and let's try to cover more or less the entire Europe. So, um, so we put in place a plan of launching 15 new countries in 15 months. And, um, and we sort of um, four, four to six countries into that launch plan. Why 15 countries in 15 months? Is that a, is that a, it sounds good marketing wise or why 15 months and why not 12 or 18 months? Yeah, it, um, well, it, it, we, we did the bottom up analysis of what kind of countries do we see ourselves in. But I would say having launched in six countries over the course of six years and not having launched a new country in two years, you know, you easily default to like a market by market approach where you say, okay, let's just launch one new market, see how that goes, and we launch another one. And I guarantee you, you will not launch 15 in 15 months. Right. So we decided to flip it around and say, okay, what would be amazing? And we said, okay, 15 markets in 15 months, it would be amazing. And then instead work backwards and say, okay, how, how can we ever make that? You know, what, what needs to be true to, to launch so many markets in 15 months when we've done six in six years? Yeah. And, and so that has been a little bit the challenge that we took on. And, um, and that has been exciting. And when you decided this, I mean, for this uh, North Star goal, what was the things that you identified first that this is the things that we need in place in order to be able to do this? Well, we, we needed to build a muscle that can launch a new market and a methodology of how to do it. And that, you know, obviously we had some learnings from the first six markets, so we kind of knew what it took and what steps needed to be done. But we, we needed a strong muscle that could tackle uh, several markets at the same time. What's a muscle in this case? Well, you know, an, an organization. Okay. Um, so in, in Playo, we, we organized in what we call domains, but it's essentially organizations. And, and we now have a market expansion domain that masters all of the different crafts or capabilities you need to launch a market. Everything from legal, finance, um, marketing, uh, you know, integrations, you know, product engineering and so on. So they have all those capabilities available, but they're all working on the same goal, which is setting these new markets up for success. Okay. And is there any key? Of course, this is the whole organization and so on, but is there any key roles that needs to be you know on on spot or so in order for you to be able to go into that new market well i think for this domain uh, we more or less need all roles yeah because it's like we need to operate everything in a new market so we even need a, a recruiting capability uh, we just definitely need legal to set up in terms of divisions and all that kind of stuff we need sales we need marketing we need customer success so it's um it's a miniature of what we need in mature markets. Okay, and you do that for each market that you will go out to. So you, you create this this mini mini plio organization to be able to put out there. Or well, think of think of it as more like an incubator. Okay, you say hey, there there's um, there's a team that incubates new markets, and they basically own a new market for uh, the whole preparation the launch and let's say three to six months after that until certain maturity is reached okay and then the market is brought into the regional organization that is more like 
per permanent and running and mature. So this market expansion organization, they're sort of spitting out markets as an incubator. I think that's really interesting. And Thomas and I both have a background where we, we represented a company where it was a little bit of a land grab exercise. So it was about moving really fast into many geos, as many geos as possible without losing control. But one of the, the debates we always had was that moving into many new geos can potentially come at a cost at some of the established markets you have uh, because you lose a little bit of focus. I know you guys are 800 people, but still you can't be everywhere at the same time. So how do you guys balance that? It's absolutely uh, on point. It's hard. It is just hard. And there is no real uh, good solution to this. I think the way we've done it is that we have organizations around each market and they have some autonomy and they also have marketing, they have sales, they have customer success and they even have some international product available as well. So existing markets also have all of these capabilities available to grow and mature. The, the limitation is always that you always want the product to be better and new things in the product. And at the end of the day, we are tapping into the same pool of engineers Right. And suddenly they need to spread their attention on 12 markets instead of six markets and, and eventually many more markets, right? And that has a cost. That, there's no doubt about it. A good SaaS company can grow to $10 million in ARR and exit to an M&A consolidator. But a great, enduring SaaS company can grow to hundreds of millions of dollars of ARR and become really iconic. The difference between a good company and a great one is often in perfecting their go-to-market fit. But how do you do that? Access our new go-to-market fit toolkit at gtmf.ox.vc to find out the common denominators for perfecting your go-to-market fit and much more. I guess that now I'm just doing an assumption that what is uh, beneficial here is if you have a good branding exercise made before. And I, I know that you worked with branding on an early stage at Pleo. So could you tell us a little bit about that and, and how you have benefited from that yeah. later in the journey? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's not that we were super deliberate about that from the point of foundation, Nico and I, and, and the point where the team was small. But we had a little bit of an aha moment after a couple of years. So what happened after a couple of years, the team was about 30 people. We started to do some really deep uh, customer research and we got some feedback on why they thought our product was great. And, and some of that was expected, you know, our product was saving them time, it was automating their processes and it's a good workflow. And of course we optimized for that. But there was a level underneath that which was like, said, hey, you know, our employees, they're actually so happy with, the, with your product that, you know, they, they're raving around it and they, you know, at, you know, all hands and stuff like that, they would stand up and clap that we started with Pleo and, you know, and we were like, okay, that sounds a little bit, it's, it's a little more than saving time. And they said, you know, well, Pleo has become a proof point of the kind of culture we want to be. It's become, um, you know, almost like a statement that we trust our employees and we respect their time. And... You know, they were used to such a horrible, disrespectful and disempowering experience. And now they just, they have the opposite. And that's just, it's really something that we value and we've started to share it when we recruit because it tells a story of what, what kind of company we are. 
we were like, okay, that's really overwhelming, but you know, that's really cool. And we realized that, you know, hey, we had just built the product with the values and in the way that we wanted to build our own business and the product we wanted to use. And, you know, in a subtle way, we had exported our beliefs in how companies should operate to our customers. And I've been wanting to have Playoff for years, and I don't really know exactly how it works. But you know, I've seen the messaging, and you know, I I really don't like to to work with the receipts and all of that. So yeah, yeah, you should get it. <laughs> yeah, I should get it. Yeah. <laughs> what stops me now? Yeah. I have my own company. <laughs> no, so I think my my point here is that um, we felt that there was a more emotional part of of uh, of our product, and we were like saying, hey, this this needs to come through in our brand, and there needs to be a red thread between the product experience that we're delivering, the way that Thomas, not having used our product, is perceiving us in the market, and the way that talent is perceiving us in the market, so our employer brand. So at that point in time, we started to be more strategic around what should we be from a brand, employer brand, and a product experience, uh, from a product experience perspective. And and we've sort of doubled down on, on that over time. And, and I think, you know, we're pretty happy with where we are today. Of course, um, awareness of Pleo and, and what we do, we need to scale that. But I think for the maturity we are in as a company, we're pretty happy with, with the brand recognition and the emotions associated with our brand. That's really interesting. And uh, I mean, you're touching on, on brand and culture, the, them working somehow is side by side or being intertwined. I'm curious a little bit, like, because we felt, you know, we, we've seen it on the events, we've seen it on LinkedIn, that there seems to be a particular play or culture. Like, how do you, as a CEO, as the founder, what is your role in this culture exercise? Well, I get this question really often also internally, you know, what, how do we maintain our culture when we grow as fast as we are? Because it's really precious for, for people. And, you know, the, the reality is, I, I don't know if I have the answer to that um, because I've not tried it before. And I think, you know, it is risky when you grow as fast as we are, more than doubling headcount on a yearly basis that, hey, I can see mathematically we could lose the culture growing so, so fast. I think, one, there's a few things that we are really religious about. One is how we hire and who we hire. And there's there's a big belief from our side that, if you hire people that, let's say, 80% identify themselves with the culture we have, then there's not so much work to do to maintain it. Now, if you hire people that are completely distanced to your culture, it's going to be very hard. Right. But how, how, do you, how do you vet that in an interview process? You know, because some people are greater than others than yeah. playing the part, so to say, to get the job. How, how do you really vet it? So we, we, we can't, you know, it, it, it's not like a, a multiple choice or anything like that, but it's a part of the process that people uh, uh, evaluate the candidate from a values point of view. Um, and so that it's, a, it's a step in the process. And for the first 200 hires, that was my interview. Uh, but now it's, it's, more, uh, it's more distributed. So I think that's one. I think the second one I'm always mentioning is that I think what's really important is that we all feel accountable for a culture. That is not only me, because there's only so much I can do. So I invite every single uh, person in Playo uh, at any occasion to say, hey, feel accountable for our culture. Make yourself accountable and make the people around you accountable. And if you see stuff that you feel is off culture, you need to deal with it and, and hold yourself and, and the company honest. 
Because otherwise, you know, you, you, stuff can start to to be off culture, and it's not, if it's not dealt with, it, people are just leaning back and like expecting for HR to come solve it. You know, it's not happening. Uh, we have great HR, but they don't see everything, right? So yeah, and when HR is involved, it's usually too late. Yeah, exactly. So there's something like that, and then there is, you know, com- thinking of our culture a little bit as a product, where we like we know that we need to reinvent a lot of things uh, on the go and the way we were able to group up as a company four times a year early on, we can't do that anymore. So what can we do instead? So we constantly push out new formats of how relationships are built and, and stuff like that. And we, we mentioned it, when you're growing fast, uh, it's a risk or it can be hard to maintain company culture. Is it worth the risk growing that fast that it could hurt the culture? Well, essentially, I feel like we don't have a choice. Okay. Uh, so, I think a part of well, a part of our success, and I think a part of any company's success early on is daring to think big and rally around that. Okay. And I actually think that that's a very non-Danish thing to do. We are very humble in Denmark, and we have a term called "yentelon," which is like you know. You should not feel, um, you know, too, too, whatever. You should not feel too successful in front of other people. Then we don't like you. I didn't think you have that in Denmark. I thought that was just a Swedish thing. Uh, yeah. What is it called in Sweden? <laughs> is it called the same? Jantelagen. Yeah, yeah, same thing. Same thing. Same yeah. thing. Yeah. We also have that in Denmark. Okay. It's it's in the culture. I I think just yesterday on a side note, maybe related, maybe not related, but in the newspaper here in Sweden, it was about how your prince was uh, biking with his kids to school. Yeah. I, it doesn't get more humble than that. He was biking with the kids to school. Yeah, he had, we, have the, we have the same bike here now. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> it's, a re, it's, a really, it's a really cool one. It's a really cool one. Um, now, so what I was getting at is that, you know, despite that, that Danish Yanderlow, you know, we have found that it is incredibly important to allow yourself to dream big and rally around it. Because what happens then is that it's more or less a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that that is what it takes to, to attract the right people, people that are ambitious, the right investors, the media, etc. But it also just happens that if you started to invite people on a moon journey uh, and, you know, you have 100 and 200 people rallying around getting to the moon, Mm. You know, you cannot, uh, you, you, you cannot exit in uh, whatever Gothenburg, right? Yeah, right. You, you, you got, you got to keep, keep dreaming about the, the, the moon. And that's, why, that's what I mean by I don't think we have an option because we need to get there in order to keep the culture, the excitement, the passion, because it's such an important part of who we are. Yeah. So would you have three tips for founders that are in this exercise scaling and growing going out to new markets and and so and keep culture well i think the first one could be um recycled here i think you know allow yourself to dream big and and really figure out how you communicate and you you break up that journey to clear milestones where you need to be in one two three four five years number two make sure you bring on the right people yeah I think uh, very little of the success of Playo comes from me. It comes from the, the people around us. It comes from our early hires where I'm just so grateful because what they build, the culture they have ensured we have has been replicated and scaled 
they may not be part of the company anymore, but you know they have instilled something that still uh, survives in Clio. So I think care a lot about the first 15 hires you make. And if you make the wrong hires, we made the wrong hires, you've got to deal with it. Because when you turn 15 people, if you have the right team, I ensure you that that will replicate. Mm. It, it, it's unstoppable. Yeah. Do you also live by the mantra like, higher for culture and the skill sets they can find in the beginning or i think in the beginning uh you you can lean more towards the passion and the culture the appetite and the raw brain power right um and then they will figure out a, more, more than you would think as you mature um you you need experience okay yeah uh, but in the beginning, it's just incredible because, you know, fires need to be, you know, shut off everywhere. And, you know, you would have incredible uh, firefighters. And as I said, you know, when you get to 15 and what we really enjoyed also was, and it was not by design, it was by availability. But we had an incredibly diverse team when we hit 15 from a, um, a nationality point of view. I was still the only Dane at that point in time. Okay. Wow. And I don't think we succeeded so well in terms of different age groups or from a gender. We did okay-ish. Mm. But I think the fact that we had a multinational team made it a, an incredibly uh, inclusive workplace where a lot of different backgrounds could easily plug in and succeed and feel welcome and have a social thing going on. Yeah. So it has also opened uh, our ability to recruit from everywhere and set all different kinds of backgrounds up for success. Yeah. I haven't thought about it before. It just, you know, crossed my mind when you said it now. Maybe the fact that you were the only Dane and so many internationals so early on helped you build a culture that is internationally suiting. Yeah. It fits for, from day one. If you would be the first 100 hires, Danes, maybe it would have you know, uh, affected the culture work in a way that was maybe not as easy to scale. I think there's no doubt about that. If you have 15 Danes in the beginning, it's hard to be number 16 coming from another country. Mm. It's just hard. It's hard to change that at that point in time. Yeah. So again, it was not, I would, won't claim that we did this by design. Uh, it was just how it ended up being. Uh, but I look back now and I, I find uh, ourselves fortunate that that was the case. Okay, so we have one... Um, Think big, and then we have hire the right people, and then we have number three. Uh, don't run out of money. Okay. <laughs> don't run out of money. And I actually, I'm joking a little bit here, but I think, you know, running out of money or almost running out of money is, um, is, is horrible. It's a horrible situation to be in because you need to, to make decisions that should not be, be made. Okay. And you lose motivation and you, you instill fear, and it's hard to recover. Yeah. We've always raised money ahead of time. Uh, and we again, I don't think we did this so much as by design. We did it because, you know, we had real estate and families and all of that. And we were like, you know, we're not going to put that at risk. So we always raised early on. And, and it has meant that we've been able to sleep. We've been able to make the right investments, never pausing, but just, you know, growing steadily. Um, and, and I think that's been good. You know, I'm not going to mention his or her name here. I was in Barcelona uh, earlier this week at Saster and I bumped into another founder and we were talking about this, like the change financial times and, you know, what should you do if you have money or don't have money? And then we, we start talking about like, there are some companies that have lots of money and, and your, your, <laughs> your name came up, player came up. So 
we understand based on what we've read and the rumors we've heard that financially you're you're very sound now so what is the future for your company like you know we, we know you're doing this 15 in 15 months like what is next yeah so i think you're right in the sense that 2021 was a year for us where we decided to take in a lot of money and we didn't know what was coming but we were like you know maybe something is coming and and now we have a little bit of uh, you know choppy waters out there and we find ourselves fortunate that we we can see through that financially so we're pretty much you know just executing according to plan and we are still like we we also saying hey you know if opportunities occur from an MA, M&A point of view you know let's look at this i think there might be companies out there that would have a hard time the next 12 months so we we have an opportunity to be a bit more proactive on some of these things but i would say our strategy the next 2 years is that's the same we want to take on the entire europe and really get going in these markets there's still stuff that we need to complete in what we call our spending offering. Right. So everything enabling these organizations to spend that we haven't done yet. We are coming out with a credit product. We are now allowing companies to have a fully automated invoice payment experience. So when you receive an invoice in your inbox, it's completely automated until it's paid in the bank. No steps uh, done. We OCR the invoice, we put it up for payment, and we automatically pay it for you. Oh man, we, we need that. We need that. This two man show needs that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's live in the UK and it's coming to the Nordics. So there's still stuff where we're like, hey, let's just focus and make sure that we have the best core offering before we start to think about adjacencies and, and next things. And we have ideas on that as well. But the next 18, 24 months is going to be more of what, uh, what, what we do. Right. Sticking to the foundation. I, I like that. And is there anything you would be looking for here that would help you excel? Whether that's, I don't know, a higher change legislation. Is there one thing that could help you boost this even more? Well, I think uh, for us, we, we're tackling a problem that you're not, you're no ex- exemption when you talk about we need this. I mean, every company needs this. And, and it's a very uh, untapped market in the sense that few, few companies have tools for this. So we are tackling an incredibly big market opportunity. So that makes distribution really important for us. And right now we're distributing ourselves through marketing and, and sales methodologies. But we're constantly looking for engines to improve our distribution. That could be partnerships, for example. Um, partnering up with companies that already have an installed base of customers that could bring player to the customers. So scaling our distribution is a really, really key thing for us right now. And we are searching for, for big partnerships here. Okay. So if you're listening to this and you think you have something to bring to the table in terms of partnership to player, you, you know who to call. Good. Um, then the very last question we have for everybody on the show is uh, who would you like to see on the show? It was great chatting with you. Who would you like us to to sit here and interview as well? Okay, if, if not Mass and Dix, uh, Mass is a great friend and Dix is an inspiring company. I need to, I need to find something else. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, suggest Manta, which is a new, uh, new Danish startup. They turned 100, uh, 100 employees. Um, full transparency. I am. I am a founding uh, in, investor. You know, early on when when 
Casper and 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 as the founders uh, started, you know, we we put in the first money, um, and they are doing incredibly well. They are building uh, software for EV chargers, uh, both to make your home charger really smart. You can share it with your neighbor. You can set it up so you are charging when it's low on carbon or low on price. But also they build fleet software. So if you have a company that has multiple chargers, you can manage that. If you are the airport, you know, you have hundreds of chargers, you can manage that with pricing and, and all of that. And, and they're growing uh, to new markets and they're doing incredibly well. And not so many people are aware of them because they've only been around for a year and a half. Okay. Thank you. Great tip. And Jeppe, uh, as we said, you have been on the wish list for a long time. It was great having you here. So thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, yeah, see you around. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Take care now. So Daniel, what's your main takeaway from today's episode? Uh, it was well worth the wait. Yeah. It was well worth the wait and uh, always inspiring. And I have actually many takeaways from, from this episode. But for, for me, it was it's nice to hear that there's founders that are so successful running unicorns. I'm just assuming now that, you know, in the, on a personal level, he's financially sound and so on. But he's really spending energy in making this a journey for everybody, not just for him or the player employees. He wants to really give back to uh, Denmark in this case and the Nordics if we extend it. So I, I think that was really, uh, you know, it gave warmth to my heart to hear that there's founders that think in this type of element and, and stretch their thoughts to, to all of us. So uh, that was really one of the big takeaways. And then there were some really cool takeaways about how, how they build their business and how they scale internationally with, with the teams and the squads and so on to take one country. And when they go into a country, they have the entire team that is ready to fill each and every function to run in that country. Yeah, sort of working with that internal incubator and, and then, you know, uh, deploying those teams out in the new markets. That's uh, Exactly, exactly. So w- what are you walking away with from this episode? First, I mean, just the uh, the insight of that the, the game is changing when it comes to attracting talent, that uh, the world looks different and, and we see other countries now coming with very favorable like offers for people to uh, to uh, work from there like bali just came out with like a five-year very favorable package and uh, are you tempted well yeah i'm a little bit tempted so (laughs) don't get any crazy ideas no exactly Uh, and then also i think it's um, when you scale and when you are an international company if you have that in your dna from the beginning that that it makes it much easier as well Uh, and also to recruit with culture in mind from the beginning and and make sure to have really strong culture bearers uh, well when you, when you start building your company i think that's some of the takeaways i take with me. yeah awesome and i know thomas before you guys jump on a cruise here with the family you, there's still some some things cooking on your end here what are you working on well First things first is the Celsius Digital event that we mentioned earlier, so please check that out. Head over to CelsiusDigital2022.com. Make sure to register so you get it in your calendar. It's September 27th. And then we also have some other things uh, here that you will see quite soon that we will announce some new initiatives from us at Cess Nordic. So uh, keep your eyes open and uh, see you around. See you around.